Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Spencer Lodge podcast in partnership with our awesome sponsors, Najahi Events. Go check them out. There's more about them later on, so listen out for it. Okay, in today's podcast, we keep trying to find good guests. We keep trying to find people that have got some value to add to you. What about industrial espionage, covert operations? What about kidnapping, ransom, undercover? Well, today's guest on the show is known as the real James Bond. And so I suppose I better leave it just there and cue the music. So, Will, thank you so much for coming to join us on the podcast this afternoon. It was very kind of you to put your time aside. And I know you're going to have so much valuable information to share with the audience this afternoon. Before we go any further, though, uh, on your profile picture, you clearly wear Savile Row suits. So you can't be doing that bad. Tell us a bit about your story, your backstory and your history. Wow, Spencer, I don't know, I don't know how much time you have. And I'll try and keep it as condensed as I possibly can. Uh, so... I'm one of these unusual characters in my industry and uh, and security, whenever you get asked what you do for a living, it's always a very challenging question to actually answer um, because one can't say it's a very conventional trade. I'm not a plumber, I'm not a, a stockbroker, I'm not a, you know, a scientist, it's, uh, I'm in security and security means different things to different people. And I would say that I fall into the category of what they call specialist security. Now that, that sounds kind of a, a bit pompous, but it kind of draws a little bit away from the, the alarms and bells and a, and a guy with a fancy hat and a nice uniform standing on a, on a gate or standing, you know, protecting the prawn mayonnaise sandwiches in your local supermarket. And that's not to say that those guys, guys don't have a, a very important function to fulfill. And we are all part of the same family. But I tend to deal with a slightly more unusual situations. Uh, and those situations can range everything from a cyber related issue to blackmails, stalkers, kidnappings, counterterrorism, and pretty much everything in between. But where I'm somewhat unusual is I don't come from the conventional backgrounds that most people do when they enter this industry. A lot of people will come to it either from former military, law enforcement, or intelligence backgrounds. Uh, and I'm one of those uh, who's sort of been the standard bearer and the flag waver, if you like, for the civilians who come into the industry, because my background itself came from a very unconventional sort of start in so much as uh, I was a, a big practitioner of martial arts. Um, for many, many years, started my martial arts journey at the age of seven. And like most young boys and quite a few young girls, uh, started with judo uh, at the age of seven. My father had been in the military. Uh, he was a keen boxer as well. So again, I went, continued on that journey and over time was involved in, uh, you know, studying many, many different arts. And this is, we're talking way back into the 70s and early 80s. Um, and I stumbled across an individual, a very, very fascinating individual who became my mentor. And this chap was one of the, the great and the good and one of the legends to a certain extent of uh, the Special Air Service and the, the UK Special Forces. Uh, and this chap, who I can only reveal as the name of John, and that is his first name, uh, was in fact uh, Andy McNabb's troop leader. So, you know, he's, he was a well-recognized person, but he came from a, a background of martial arts himself. We trained together over many, many years. And he taught me an awful lot. And he kind of became a mentor for me. Uh, and we became firm friends. And he sort of introduced me to this wider and broader perspective of personal protection and delivering personal safety and protection, you know, to corporate executives, which fell into sort of two parts. It was the, you know, the hard skills side, as we call it in the industry, which is the actual physical aspects. And then there was the more intrinsically interesting aspects, which I enjoyed probably as much, if not more, which was about the psychological issues of dealing with threats. And whether that be an early recognition, awareness and avoidance, what are the threat indicators or the combat indicators, as they're often referred to, that you can detect or identify before or in advance of an attack taking place? And putting this all the way down, back down to an individual, I then uh, started translating this into sort of courses that I delivered for many, many companies. And these were sort of big industrials, big FTSE 100, Fortune 500 companies and would combine the physical with the psychological. And I had uh, more and more demand. And as it turned out, I started emptying, you know, the, uh, the back shelves of Hereford and Poole and bringing in sort of former special forces operators to come and deliver a lot of these training courses. Met some fascinating guys. 
and one of the things that I've always been a strong exponent of is um, where you're incapable of doing it, bring in someone who is and recognize your own limitations, but also to be as absorbent as possible. There's always something you can learn from someone. And it doesn't matter whether it be good, bad or indifferent. You can be the decider of that later down the line. But everybody has something to contribute. And I think maybe one of my skills um, is that I am very, very quick to pick up on certain training aspects, skills, techniques, that sort of thing, to then sort of incorporate and shape, obviously, into a, into a practical application, perhaps for, say, companies, for executives. So what moved very quickly from training these executives, and many of the companies turned around and said, well, we're traveling to really weird parts of the world. Would you be able to send yourself or one of the guys to potentially look after them when they travel, make sure they don't get killed, kidnapped or, or otherwise? Yeah. So the business kind of grew organically. And with the various expertise that came in, you know, we had a very, very wide tapestry and portfolio of skill sets that could be brought in. And in the same way as when people say to me, and this is going to be deemed as quite controversial, people say to me, who are the best military in the world? I would say you couldn't pick necessarily one. I mean, we're going to have obviously more of a patriotic loyalty to our own, inevitably, but everybody has something to bring in. And the company is the multi-tool. So it's bringing in the various tools that are applicable. So a lot of guys who'd come out of special forces, they may be very, very good at doing close target reconnaissance, doing sabotage, doing espionage, but they may not necessarily be that good at looking after a senior executive for a, a gray industrial company who needs someone who's low profile. So I've worked with the great, the good and the ugly over the years. Uh, and it's been a really interesting journey. And I, you know, I'm now in my mid fifties. Have I learned everything? No. Um, when I get invited, as I have already today, by the media to speak on various things, and they say, can we tag you as security expert? I'm very inclined not to adopt that, uh, that term. I think expert is, is a little too arrogant, and I think it's too finite. And I think we've always got something to learn. Wow. That's an interesting introduction there. Now, if you if you take the kind of like I mean I'm 50 you're in your mid 50s through a similar age if you, if you go back to the kind of the, the days when we were kids we didn't have things such as cyber crime that was anything that we even considered um, it was everything other than that and then this thing came along with the internet and everything else you know probably 20 years ago now and and changed a lot but but I think even to this day people are very oblivious to the the whole risk they're taking with everything they do even though we see time and time again companies getting threatened in different ways, whether that's hacking into social media networks, uh, whether that's, you know, recently Manchester United Football Club, as an example. But it's almost like, it's, to me, it reminds me of life insurance. All right. And, and it's like you, you, most people buy life insurance when they've just found someone dead uh, in their family. Someone's died and they've gone, oh, my goodness me, I haven't got any life insurance. I better get some. Or the critical illness insurance when somebody's gone and got cancer or they've got cancer themselves. And it's like, oh, man, you know, I should have done that. It's always, like, always a little bit too late or takes a massive event that it kind of they're exposed to themselves for them to go, ah, OK, the penny has now dropped. Does that does that seem fair? Yeah, and I think that's a, that's a prevailing um, issue that we face in security full stop. It's very difficult to actually quantify the savings that you necessarily make unless it's in a very, very realistic and tangible sense like a loss of life. But even with loss of life, it can be incredibly difficult for people to say, well, I'm unlikely to be exposed to that particular issue. And that transcends through to cyber. It transcends through to a number of issues. I mean, uh, I always try and try and think of ways to best explain it to clients. And one of the ways is you're paying us for things not to go wrong and for nothing to happen. That's the key thing. You're paying for nothing to happen. Um, and this does happen with cyber. And the, the first thing you have to accept is nothing is 100% secure. Um, it doesn't matter whether you're a government, whether you're a private individual, it doesn't matter how much money you spend. And the reason why it's not 100% secure is not because of the technology that is necessarily there that is either able to be put in to protect you, or it's necessarily the technology that's being mounted against you in that attack. It's more often than not that weak link in between the two, which is us. And it's the human aspect. And most security, if it's going to be intrinsically good, has to actually involve a great deal of effort on our part. 
Um, we would love, and even in these times of advanced technology, to simply press a button and the problem is resolved. Um, more often than not, it can ha we have to contribute and that process of contribution, the more it is, the better it should be. So for example, everybody should be, uh, you know, one of the ways I would explain it, say for example, password management, um, everybody should have a minimum of 15 letters or symbols within their or characters within their password. Um, 15 is really your optimum. Now I can see your eyes already rolling. It's in the, it, wait, uh, as you're saying it in the background, the jaw has just dropped at my producer, Alicia. She's gone, I think my However, boss <laughs> about three. However, I, there, is a, there is a saving grace here, Spencer. But if you utilize that with say a password manager, there is only one password that you need to remember. And it is that 15 character password. That's a very good point. I find myself, why 15 and not 14 and not 20? What's the reason for that? I have no idea, but people far smarter than me with hats with small propellers on top have told me so. <laughs> and and as you're, as you're kind of like your career evolved from doing the, 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 the kidnapping and espionage, that kind of stuff from the past, and it yeah. moved, moved into this more, more digital age, was there, was there a, a, an awful lot you had to start learning to be able to, to try and deal with this? Was it a, literally a whole new world in essence for you to learn? To a certain extent, yes. I mean, it's, it's would I call myself a cyber security expert? Uh, no, I wouldn't. And even when with a, with a book that was published and very well received specifically on cyber security issues, I, may, I get a great pains at the beginning of the book actually in the introduction to say, I am not a cybersecurity expert. I mean, there are people out there who live and breathe code and programming and hacking. And, you know, and I know quite a lot of them who are fantastic. But where my function's always been has been to understand what the technology is and what the techie, the guy with a small propeller on his head, uh, is saying and translate it into a digestible format for the client who doesn't understand these things at all so that they can understand and quantify and, uh, and comprehend it. Uh, and that's really always been my function. So I, I've been very fortunate to work with some people that, you know, are immensely talented. Could I do what they do? No, probably not. Uh, and, highly, and highly likely not. But what I can do is explain and create that bridge between them and the people, the end user that needs to use it and be able to uh, explain it in a sensible way in plain English. Got it. Okay, when I was younger, I lived in a country called Nigeria. And uh, I'm actually a third generation of my family to live in Nigeria because my grandparents were missionaries there in the Second World War. Uh, my dad was born there in 1945 and he lived there as a boy before independence and he came back. And then uh, my dad went to work in the oil industry many years later and that's when I went there. So three generations. So I think my family have a, a fairly decent understanding. We've lived all over the country from Lagos to Port Harcourt to Abuja and to Joss and everything else and it, people ask me to describe Nigeria but I can't I can't give it there's not enough words I can use to describe it but Nigeria is incredibly corrupt and I know there are many places that are corrupt but it's kind of like over the years it's there's been a highlight on Nigeria in particular and the, this kind of 419 scam thing that went on and you know whether it's the chest of money that needs the die and the twenty thousand dollars to buy the die to clean the money or whether it's the you know the 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 old lady being promised you know wealth in in massive amounts and get on a plane and come to lagos airport and uh, blah 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 but being in an environment like that it kind of made me a little bit more streetwise and a little bit more aware of what was going on and i remember when i moved to brazil into sao paulo people said oh don't go to brazil it's very dangerous and i'm like i've lived in nigeria brazil's going to be a walk in the park by comparison but as we look around the world today you know i i think that people even more so nowadays because they're probably staring at their devices even more are blinkered to what's going on around them and they're also probably consuming the kind of news they want to consume rather than what you and I did when we were younger, which was, you know, news at six, news at nine, news at 10 or whatever it was. And we had to consume all of it, no matter what it was. Do you think people are oblivious to, or not oblivious, that's not a fair word. Do you think people are, are naive maybe to what's going on around them nowadays? And do the same problems that existed 30 years ago still exist today? Um, it's a really good question. Really good question. I think people are disconnected, but I think they're disconnected in a fashion where there's, and, and I've used some very good examples there, where 
people have got such an influx of data and information coming from so many different and varied sources that I think it the, the, the natural filter and trust aspect is just not there as it used to be. And as you say, you know, when you look at terrestrial news, you're going to hopefully get um, a fairly clear and linear picture of exactly what's going on. And one would hope impartial. However, that has now all been thrown into the mix. And we've seen this with the Trump campaigns and the fake news, uh, even deep fakes, all sorts of things which are potentially now confusing people. And also those people who are purporting to be um, experts <laughs> uh, that are utilizing social media, utilizing the web, using, utilizing all sorts of different channels to project their opinions, to project their analysis, and I think by proxy, there is almost this kind of give or take attitude that people are taking now, rather than it's delivered and it's received in as simple as that. People are now in a, hmm, I'm gonna question this a little bit more and maybe I'll look somewhere else. And it was, it was kind of interesting. I saw a meme, I'm a big meme fan, even at my age. And I saw this great one someone sent me this morning, which was a split picture. And at the top of the picture, it says vaccination being researched by scientists. And then the bottom half of the picture was someone sitting on the loo and saying, uh, anti-vax being how was that's researched you know? <laughs> but it was on with their device you know and I think it's really indicative of of sadly the time that we're in and I, I I feel kind of worried for children and and kids growing up these days because they have this just sheer volume of data coming in that it's confusing the hell out of them and I think that you know it's great to formulate a good broad uh, analysis and assessment of a situation but you know, I always say to people, whenever they get these kind of uh, fake um, threats that come through, you know, I heard, and I'm sure you've heard these, Spencer, you know, the, oh, a friend of mine who's in the security services um, says, don't come into London tomorrow because they're all coming to Dubai tomorrow because there's going to be an attack. Um, and amazing how many people still fall, with, fall for them. And you'll know from, from your times in Nigeria, the 419 scams, you know, I had a very good friend of mine who used to work on the West African fraud desk at the Met Police that dealt purely with 419 threats. And I sat down and said, how can someone be so daft and stupid to think that, you know, someone's got $10 million, they want to get out of the country and they need your help uh, to fall for it. And he said, you'd be so amazed, Will. There are barristers, doctors, accountants, professional people who all fall for it. And the reason I kind of raise that is in terms of the correlation between the attraction and the greed and the emotive drives by individuals to being led down certain garden paths in terms of the intelligence and information that they're receiving and then subsequently following and believing. Well, it's that common sense does not prevail because just maybe, just maybe it could be true. <laughs> exactly. But as they always say, Spencer, the one thing about common sense is it's rarely common. <laughs> I think Gordon Gecko once said greed is good, but not when it comes to 419 scams. <laughs> My role model, Gordon Gecko. <laughs> so when we when we look at that kind of stuff and, you know, I, I remember when I lived in Brazil, I, re I met Ronnie Biggs. And, uh, you know, he's famous. You, you can all go visit him and you can pay some money. You meet his son and you go and spend a t bit of time with him. And he tells his story. And this is before he had his first stroke. And um it, it, they, 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 were, they were heroes to some degree, weren't they? These types of guys that went and did what they did, regardless of the truth of what happened, there was a, a great story around it. And, and in many times over the years, there's that kind of Robin Hood type mentality that's, or, or, that's kind of like stuck on their back, that name tag stuck on their back, which I find really fascinating. And I find really sad nowadays because I'd like some good old cowboys and Indians and I'd like some good old bank robbers and uh, and that kind of stuff. But it, it seems to be now that nobody walks into a bank to rob it anymore. People seem to not have to drill through the floor. They can just uh, hack into the systems to get what they need. I mean, the number of cyber extortionists that we've dealt with, I mean, the evolution of things like crypto bit, crypto lock, this ransomware, which people um, can receive. I mean, again, a lot of this stuff comes down to human effort to prevent you being coming a victim of it. And, you know, more often than not, the two things which I found prevail where people have been vulnerable to these attacks and then found themselves really in a hole is number one, not updating software when they should have or putting in the software patches, which are readily available, but they just don't make the time to do them. And the second thing 
is is really coming down to the individual uh, not backing up their data. You know, because if, for example, I got a ransomware on my device today, I'd go, yeah, and I'd just literally restore the entire device with all the backed up data that was continually backed up. And if you can do those two simple things in the same way as one of the best ways to prevent yourself or your account getting hacked um, is to make sure you always have two-factor authentication on all of your accounts. And if you have 2FA, it's, yeah, there are workarounds by those that are really determined enough. And we go back to that thing, nothing's 100% safe, but it's probably one of the most effective ways to prevent yourself getting hacked. Yes, I completely understand that. Right, let's talk about children. My, my, I, I was a kid and I was bullied at school. I'm very grateful that I was. Uh, not at the time, but I'm grateful because I went on a mission for the next 20 years to try and stick two fingers up their derriere um, to remind them of what I was doing and that what they weren't. So there, there was lots of drive that came from that. But my, my youngest daughter was bullied at school. But bullying for me ended when I got home from school and my mum would cook dinner and I'd sit and watch TV. But for her, it never ended. And whatever the messaging app was there was then from the moment she got home all the way through the evening being excluded, included, uh, um, being mean on whatever it may be and lots of nasty stuff. You wrote a book all about doing or helping parents understand more. Can you talk about that book? And also, can you talk about some of the problems that you see today and what parents can do to make better decisions? And I just uh, would like to learn a bit more about that. Well, it's very kind of you. Yeah, it was it was a book that I, I got approached to write a couple of years ago um, by one of the really good, you know, big house publishers. And, uh, and I was kind of a uh, little trepidous about writing it for the reasons I explained a little earlier that I'm not, you know, uh, I did, wouldn't self-profess to be a cyber expert, but I do do the translation. And that was exactly what they wanted. They didn't want something written by, you know, as a technical manual so much as something which would just talk to the parents in a kind of matter of fact and plain English way, but without terrifying them too much. And I mean, if you've read the book, Spencer, you'll know that there's some pretty scary stories in there. But it was uh, the book, Parent Alert, How to Keep Your Kids Safe Online, was intended to be a bit of a roadmap for parents. And one of the things that they said to me was, um, I, or I said to them, pardon me, I said, uh, what age category do you want me to cover? And they said, from 13 to 17. Uh, oh, sorry, 7 to 17. And I went, you're kidding me, 7 to 17? There's absolutely no way that we can cover something that's going to cover that broader age demographic. Um, and they said, well, we really want to cover it. And I said, well, look, the best way that we can do that is seven to 13 is going to be best practice. It's trying to ingrain in the child some of the key things that they can do. And then the 13 to 17 is going to be crisis management because by the age of 13, they will have probably far exceeded their parents' capability in, in their technical know-how. And, you know, and I've got friends in the National Crime Agency who've said to me, Will, we've just picked up hackers who are 14 years old. And these kids are off the charts. And it was such a shame that we couldn't kind of divert them before they went to criminality and bring them into GCHQ or one of the big agencies to be able to assist because their capability was astounding. So the kind of risks that, that, that uh, people are facing are not disappearing because it's a human factor. And people said to me, this book will be out of date within six months. It's not, it's still quite relevant. There are things that have changed. Some of the platforms, Xbox, PlayStation, uh, Nintendo, they've got far better at dealing with online bullying, at dealing with obviously protecting and, and enabling the child to be able to report through any kind of abusive behavior that they may be. And it's about siloing with their devices, the ways that they can find a safe space. And I hate that word safe space, but it does really apply here where the child can inhabit, can do the things that they want to do online, but without intrusion. So they don't find themselves in a situation, as you rightly say, and this has happened to many, many kids I've spoken to, where they leave the schoolyard, but they're still being trolled on their social media. They're still being trolled on messaging apps. Um, and a lot of the devices, a lot of the device manufacturers themselves, a lot of the actual app manufacturers uh, and developers are being very, very good about putting in that silo capability. But there is an intrinsic responsibility by the parents and parents won't like me saying this that they've got to understand the devices that their kids are, are playing on and, and 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 using and what are the, the the things that are interesting them and i have a kind of a three-point kind of overarching philosophy that and mantra that i suggest to, to parents the first thing is really about 
trust. You, you, your kids will look at material online you really don't want them to look at. And it's not necessarily on their own device. It's gonna be from their friend's device that they're gonna share and show to them. So you have to kind of accept that they're gonna be looking at stuff that you don't want them to do. They're gonna be going and inquisitive and searching out various materials, which again, you won't want them to do. So that leads to the next part, which is about talking. If you put a spyware on your kid's device and they find it, you've lost their trust completely. So it's really important that you talk to them. And I set out in the book, some of the ways that you can approach the subject, discuss sensitive issues. I mean, a bit like the birds and bees when you and I were young, Spencer, but in a much broader, much more current sense about why are you looking at these kind of videos or why are you looking at this kind of material? Uh, I accept and, and understand that you will see it, whether I want you to or not, but let's try and comprehend what it is. Is this a good representation of a healthy re relationship? Is this uh, a good you know, a, a concept of uh, how the world is, about what violence is, about viral challenges, all these kind of things, a parent's got to engage. And the way that I usually say that is in the same way as if your kids, Spencer, turned around and said, I'm going out today, Dad, I'm going to be playing with Julie, Fred and Harry. Uh, you'd be going, who the hell are Julie, Fred and Harry? Who are their parents? Where do they live? Where did you meet them? You know, and where are you going? And those are the, those are the key questions you would ask in a physical, real world sense. Yeah. you've got to do the same with their virtual world because there will be people that they'll be talking to online that you will have not and may not physically get a chance to meet. So it's important to find out who is that, that circle of friends that they're playing Fortnite with or that they're constantly in chat rooms with for, for a number of reasons. A, it's important to engage so the child doesn't feel isolated. So if something goes wrong, you can't help and intervene and, and assist with it or even go around and have a chat with their parents if need be. Um, but secondly, you're also protecting them from the potential grooming aspect. You know, there are a lot of people out there. I mean, they say, for example, on dating websites, 60, at least 60% of people on dating websites are married and in a relationship. And, you know, but they're purporting to be something entirely different. And then the last part of my three T's, if you like, of the trust, the talking, the third part is teamwork. And I do go to some lengths and I've had quite a few parents call me up and said, well, uh, this was the hardest part. And I said, really important that you also make it clear to the kid that if they go and get something horribly wrong and they come really unstuck, that they don't hide and that they do come and talk to you and come and talk to you without the fear that you're going to rip their head off and uh, curfew them for the rest of their lives and take all their devices away. And that's the other thing. If you think they've only got one device, think again, they're going to have more than one device. So when you confiscate that phone off them or the iPad, there's every good chance they've got another one snuck away. <laughs> and if not, they'll borrow it off a friend. So trust, talking, teamwork. Those are the three things that I think every parent needs to think about. That's really good. I like that. Um, yeah, I found out my eldest had two Snapchat accounts after, <laughs> after she said, that's the one you can see. <laughs> it's not the one that I really use. <laughs> it's like they, they, they call it Finster. So there's the fake Insta. So there are a lot of uh, a lot of kids, especially young girls, will have the Insta account, which you know about, which is going to be them, the family, the barbecue, the relatives, the cat, the dog, the hamster and everything else. Then they're going to have the slightly more racy account that you don't even know about. And I do talk about in my book how you can find out and discover what that Finster account is and where it is so that, again, you can try and shut that down. But again, this is why it's really important to do the, the teamwork and the talking, because if you shut that down, you discover this account, which is going to drive you insane. And you'll go, oh, my God, this is my young daughter. And she's putting out this really racy image um, that if you just shut it down, she's going to open another one. So that's why the talking is really important. And it's, and it's going, OK, but do you know what the implications are? If you're going to put pictures up here, if it's going to be an open account, what are the risks that you're potentially exposed to? Okay, you can't you you can't explain what you just explained without realizing that there's probably going to be a few thousand people right now screaming at their phones, going, "Spencer, find out! I want to know how to do it." So <laughs> I'm for sure because I know I'll get loads of comments. Going, you didn't ask, so I'm going to ask right now. Okay, yeah, how, how, give us some clues and some tips about how we find the Finster account. 
Okay, I'm going to give you a couple because I still have books to sell, Spencer. You know, I, I am a mercenary. You got to remember that, <laughs> guys. Probably, guys, hold on a minute. Hold on a minute, then, guys. Everyone of you listening, okay, make sure. Okay, I'll put the link to his book afterwards. Go and get a copy. Keep him happy, and we'll get more info out of him. <laughs> well, there's a, there's a lot more in there actually. I'll come back to the finster in a second. But it, it, I remember when I first brought the book out, some friends of mine in the intelligence agencies turned around to me and said, "What the hell are you doing, Will?" And I went, "What do you mean?" And they said. You're showing how to set up a deniable device as well. So there's there's quite a few skills in there. So I talk about how to set up secure accounts and stuff like that. But anyway, coming back to the Finster. So the first thing, obviously, is um, good thing about Instagram is, again, it's uh, set up a, an ability that if you have multiple accounts, you will sign in with the same credentials. So you'll sign in with the same password. So the first thing is to look at the top of that Instagram account and see if there are other connected accounts which are showing. The, the other way to potentially look at it is to also look at the friends, look at their followers, see who they're following. And you could set up your own deniable Instagram account. And again, you know, techniques of how to do that are in my book. And you can then potentially look at the commonality of the persons that there is a slightly more lengthy process, but the commonality of their circle of friends, your, your, your child's circle of friends. And you may not know everyone because the one thing with kids is they're looking for as many followers as they can, but look into the comments look into the likes and see who's making comments they're more than likely going to be people that are close to them and again the content and tonality of that particular comment uh, will probably indicate if you don't know the kid personally of the, their association to yours look at who though who else they're following because there's every good chance that your child will have the same followers on their other account their finster account than they as they will on their own account so there's a couple of things bit of homework but if you really want to find out it takes a little bit of time, but it's that convenience factor. The single sign-in, that is really convenient for most people because they don't want to have to remember or auto-save necessary passwords for every account. And Instagram's very good about going, oh, do you want to set it up so you've got one password for everything? So it's actually making them fall into a trap. The same applies also with things like TikTok and uh, and also with, um, ugh, you mentioned it a little Snapchat. earlier. Snapchat. gone. Snapchat. Snapchat, absolutely. Snapchat, I, I did a really interesting job on Snapchat. And the one thing I would be really cautious about is when there's updates, uh, they're getting better. But Snapchat actually took a lot of uh, kids off private mode and took them off ghost mode. So again, revealed their position. So the other thing I would say is on your own apps, have a look at them, download TikTok, even if you don't want to do, I mean, I won't be doing any dancing videos anytime soon, Spencer, let me tell you. But I do have TikTok on my phone because I wanna see what are the settings, what are the privacy issues in there? So that when clients come to me and they say, Will or friends and go, my kid's got Snapchat. I'm going, great, these are the things that you need to have set up in the settings to make sure that they're secure. Okay, let's just do one more bit on that before we finish on the kid thing. Grooming, it's gotta be the thing that scares a parent more than anything else. Um, the thought of your child being groomed and then all kinds of horrible outcomes happening. It, it to me appears that it's a, a much bigger problem than maybe we give it credit for. Would you agree with that? Uh, yeah, it's getting less so because a lot of the corners that uh, the groomers are using are being closed off to them. Um, that's not to say that there are countless, countless, I mean, in the millions of Facebook accounts, Instagram accounts, which are set up uh, fake uh, and they are fake accounts. Um, for what reasons they're being set up, whether it be stalking, whether it be uh, grooming, you know, there are multitudes of different reasons. The statistics as they currently stand is young girls are more likely to be approached for grooming than boys. Uh, the figures currently stands at almost 50% will have an approach at one time or another. So if you've got two kids, one of those kids will be approached by a groomer at some stage. The golden rules are, A, do not turn on your camera. Um, because if you turn on your camera, you're giving and revealing a lot of information. The lead of the questions, which obviously the child is being asked, quite often it will be male, female. Um, and if they reply female, then if they start asking age, and then if the child puts in a younger age, and then the communications continue, I would say that's the moment you need to start being very cautious about where that dialogue is potentially going. Again, this is about understanding your child's online friends and who they're communicating with. Through most social media platforms, the recognized ones, you're reasonably okay, reasonably okay. 
it's more the web-based portals and chat rooms, which are the ones you need to be the most worried about because they don't have the same infrastructure. They don't have the same investment to make sure that there are the administrators, controls, reporting measures to be able to report any inappropriate dialogue. But that's not to say that there isn't an awful lot of abuse going on. I get that the, the number of women that I know that, uh, and we're talking mature women, who've received uh, the infamous D-pics on regular occasions on things like Twitter or even on Instagram and Facebook are frighteningly high. I mean, again, that is uh, an enigma to me. I don't understand why guys yeah, do I it. have no idea either. I, I hear about that. I'm like, what, why do you do it? Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's, it's, it's something which it baffles me, but I can only perceive it to be that it's more of a power trip than it is anything else. It's not a genuine engagement to try and attract that woman into thinking, oh my goodness, this man has a, a, a David's sort of statue version of his appendage. <laughs> I, I, I don't think I've had a, I've known a single woman and I've known a few feisty ones in my time who would ever turn around and say, oh yes, an unsolicited, unsolicited D pick is gonna definitely make my day. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't heard one yet that does yet. <laughs> okay, I think it's, I think it's really, I think it's really scary. I really do because I, I, it, the last thing you ever want is for your, you know. And there's lots of children that kids that are vulnerable. It's not like you know they're they're, they're orphans or anything like that. But there's kids that are in families that have suffer from domestic abuse or even just mum and dad arguing a lot where they just feel isolated. And then obviously their their company and their companion is their phone, and um, and then the relationships they build could lead to so many scary issues. Um, I, I, having two daughters, it's just something that I worry about, worry about all the time. Can, can we talk? Can we talk about industrial espionage, and can we talk about the dark web? Sure. Uh, which do you want to go with first? Let's I mean, go. Both have their own fun parts to them. Well, I I think it's quite. You know, I have one one of the businesses that I'm fortunate enough to own is a company that specialises in HR, uh, a SaaS business that runs HR administration for companies. And we essentially have a lot of data that is collated on that of companies and their employees and lots of information. But competitors want that information and competitors um, could really benefit from that information. Um, and some basics of industrial espionage have been in the past when a competitor has um, had a, 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 somebody, a mole, working in our company seeking to gather that data um, so that they can share it with their true employer. Um, and, and I kind of call that old-fashioned industrial espionage, you know, the, the physical bodies in the, in the place and uh, yeah, behaving you know, just as an every, everyday member of staff. But to me, industrial espionage started off, I I'll tell you a story that a lot of people don't know, and I'm probably going to get a right going off for this when I'm, uh, when, from people that know me. But when, in 1988, I, I, was, uh, I was a salesperson in London, in the city. My patch was EC3. I, uh, my office was just over Tower Bridge, and I used to sell office equipment. And it's my first proper job, you know. Uh, I think I was with a Canon dealer, so Canon was the manufacturer. And we used to knock on doors, and we used to make cold calls every day to find our leads. But one day, we had the great idea of stealing our competitors' bins, Okay, the dustbin bags that went out on a Tuesday night, because this was before we had shredders and we used word processors. And so if you did a quotation and it was printed off and it was wrong, you'd just screw it up and put it in the bin and you'd then go and get another one. Anyway, so on a Tuesday night, we'd go down with our <laughs> Ford Sierra estate cars and we'd go to our competitors and we'd steal their rubbish bins. We'd go back to the office the next day. We'd put overalls on and our marigold gloves and we'd go through, pull out the tea bags and then we'd pull out these quotations. And essentially, that, as far as I was concerned, that's a, a very basic version of industrial espionage. Would you agree? No, absolutely. And I, I may have been known for doing similar tricks myself in the past, Spencer. Um, the, other, the other group uh, would call it competitor intelligence. Like that one. That's what it was. Competitor intelligence. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, bin rummaging is still uh, a tradecraft employed to this day. No. Because... Yeah, big time. I mean, and also, I mean, the, the on shredders, any of the listeners who are considering or have a shredder, make damn sure it's a cross-cut shredder. Don't do a strip shredder. I've spent many a wet Sunday afternoon reassembling strip sheds like a jigsaw puzzle. Uh, but the thing about our bins, and this is something also on a personal security level that you should be cautious of, is it can produce a pattern of life. 
And what we want to do is we want to, let's say we want to look at you, Spencer, and we want to see what kind of guy you are, how healthy you are, <clears throat> what are the things that, that you will generally eat. And if you look at your own diet, you'll generally fall into the same bracket of eating the same sort of stuff all the time every week because you pick the same stuff off because if you're a busy person, a busy professional, you don't really have the time to think hard, long and hard about, oh, what am I going to have this week? I'll have aubergines for a change. No, you'll, you'll go with the same foods time and time again. So going through someone's bin, looking at their food refuse, looking at maybe their credit card receipts, looking at... Um, various things like utilities bills, all sorts of stuff that people will throw away can give you an enormous amounts of intelligence. I mean, depending on where you are in the world, depend on the legalities of how you do it. But quite often, I mean, the standard drills, not that I want to give your, your, your uh, listeners any sort of naughty skills, but I mean, the general rule would be to get to the bin, don't even remove it from sight, image everything in there, and then close the bag up and you do it in the small hours when uh, so you're not actually illegally removing it from site so you know there's an awful lot and the one of the other things which we're very concerned about inevitably going back to the cyber is the sites that we're going to and aggregators like google who are getting a really good idea of what our lifestyle is and this is draws and something i talk about in the book when people go oh with home technology smart technology and the internet of uh, things I've got my Alexa speaker that is picking up on various conversations I'm having with friends. And I was talking about a holiday in Cyprus. And all of a sudden, holidays for Cyprus come up in my feed in, in Facebook. And one's got to be talking to the other. <clears throat> well, they are, but they're not necessarily listening, although there have been a few breaches. But it's us putting stuff into the internet and very, very clever algorithms compiling it together to going, well, we know Spencer likes a Chateaubriand from time to time. So let's throw a deal in for a bottle of Petrus or a Malbec, which you go, hang on a second, that's rather handy. And then it, you buy that, that will go, right, maybe it's a, a Chateaubriand that we need to order. And you'll be going, hang on, I only spoke about that the other day. So it's about the algorithms that are really drawing this information together, which is why I always suggest to people, if they're going to be doing any kind of um, sensitive web-based searching, shall we call it, Spencer, that they use something like DuckDuckGo, uh, which is a great search engine. But again, it depends on where you are in the world. You know, you're in a, in, a, in a country, in a location, a region, where there is a great deal of state-sponsored surveillance. And, you know, they do it, obviously, for very good reasons. One could question some of the levels, but, I mean, the same is in China, the same is in Russia, uh, even in the UK to a certain degree. You know, every country will have a degree of state-sponsored surveillance. So, again, it's how much information we're giving away. But, you know, using things like a VPN is a really smart move to make sure that you can obviously secure your connection to whichever website you're going to. And you're using a browser like DuckDuckGo is one good example of anonymizing your position, your IP. We're, we're, uh, it's illegal to use VPNs here in this country. Um, uh, so uh, FaceTime as well. Uh, it's not illegal to have a VPN. It's illegal to use it. So <laughs> I'm sure the people that have VPNs that are listening to this never, ever use them. <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely. Certainly not if they're based where you are. No. Do you? Yeah. But I, I remember I remember buying a last one time I was in Dubai. I remember buying a, a, an iPad and um, and got fired it up and the FaceTime wasn't working. I was like, what the hell? Walked back into the shop and they said, nope, not allowed them here. Yes, that's right. They don't have, they don't have them. People have to get them from overseas if they want FaceTime on them. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, I know exactly what you mean. Okay, lastly, before we finish, I'd like to talk to you about um, the dark web and, and the impact of the dark web on so many things over the course of the last few years. I think that people just associate the dark web with... Um, crime and nothing else however they don't know enough about it to know how they would you know be able to identify anybody that was using it let alone identify it themselves yeah well the the, the best way to really identify if it's not your child for example who is going into the dark web and i would say probably 90 percent of the content in the dark web is generally illegal in some capacity or another whether it be selling materials whether it be selling narcotics firearms all sorts of things like that but also even hackers offering up their services so if you have a, 
a spiteful situation with an aggrieved business partner or a ex-partner, you know, from a relationship, that's the kind of place that people might go to to try and acquire paying usually by Bitcoin uh, to actually get that individual to provide those services or goods or whatever they might be. Uh, the first, the couple of indicators. Firstly, is uh, Bitcoin accounts, um, it's because it's the only commodity that's obviously used, the financial currency used, obviously uh, for transactions generally within the, the dark web. And I would say, if your child does have a Bitcoin account, have a look at that statement, see how many Bitcoins they've got. You know, what is the transactional history on it, and try and attribute to where those Bitcoins are being spent. The second thing is to access the dark web, which is the first and first thing you have to be able to do you have to use a specialist browser. Because again, a lot of people don't understand that what the dark web actually is. And what it is, is that unlike say Google, where you put in cat pictures, and then it will give you a millions results of cat pictures, <clears throat> the dark web is all unlisted. So you have to be able to know where to go to find the particular items that you, you can find. You can't just generally search for it. And you'd need something like Tor, or a similar browser to that, which is an ability to be able to circumvent the standard web browsers to get into that environment. So you're going into this dark web, as you put it, um, where all of these things are unlisted, but you can daisy chain from one location to another and look for use groups, which actually do provide subsections to some of those items that you need to go to. Most people will find those things through referral. So it could be a friend of them saying, have a look at this particular use group. So not that I'm saying you should spy on your child. Again, something I don't think it's a good idea because you do, they'll disappear further down the rabbit hole. But just look at the various component parts, which the tools in the box, which they would need to have to inhabit that environment and potentially utilize that environment. How do people in your industry um, get up to speed and, 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 and navigate the dark web and, and protect us, the general public, from all of the wrongs that go on in there. Is it is it is it a minefield? It is a minefield, but you know, guys who inhabit that world quite well know their way around it quite well as well. Um, and you talked about the corporate espionage side of things. So we've had instance for large companies where databases, whether it be credit cards, whether it be names, addresses, you know, personal identifier data, which has been sold onto the dark web for people to purchase. So it could be credit card details. And what my guys will do is to go in there and to look for anybody who's selling this stuff. And there's usually the same aggregators of that data that will be used almost like agents that will then offer this stuff up and it will be a quid a, a credit card or you know five quid a, an american express account or whatever it might be so they kind of know where it is and then transactionally either with agencies more often than not again depending on where it is in the world will cohort with those agencies obviously to then set up a sting to buy that item but also to then implant various sort of very clever technology to identify their their location identify their true identity to find out who they are. And that's really, to go into great details, a bit above my pay grade, I'll be absolutely honest with you, but there are some very clever ways to do it. In the same way as with uh, BitChain, you know, with um, blockchain and with Bitcoin, I know some incredibly clever people who've been able to find out how to actually backtrace on certain Bitcoin currency to their original identifiers. So to find out actually who owns it. So it's not anonymous anymore because we saw a spate a while back where kidnappings were being actually paid, the ransoms were being paid by Bitcoin. And it was much easier for, say, the hostage negotiators to potentially do the drop by a USB key with Bitcoins on it, rather than actually taking big bundles of cash. Wow. I could sit and talk to you for hours and hours and hours, and I know we don't have much time. It's been an absolute pleasure picking your brain, learning from you this afternoon. I really appreciate your time, Will. Before you go, do me a favor. Tell everybody about your book and how they can get it. Yeah, well, the book's called Parent Alert, How to Keep Your Kids Safe Online. It's uh, if you just simply put it into um, Google or DuckDuckGo, uh, <laughs> then you'll find it pretty easily. Uh, it is available on Amazon. I think the ebook version is actually remarkably cheap now because it's been out for a couple of years. But, you know, it's had some nice reviews. And obviously, if any of your listeners have read it or do read it and they do like it, please post a review. It's, uh, it's always really kind and generous. But thank okay. you. Excellent stuff. And lastly, for the people that work in the corporate world out there, what, what, what just describe for your business your ideal client so that the people that are listening, if they fit that mold, they can reach out. 
Okay, ideal clients are ones that pay. Uh, that's always a good thing. Uh, <laughs> we love those ones, don't we? <laughs> those, those, those are my favorite ones. Those are my favorite ones. Um, really, yeah, my company is called ICP Group, International Corporate Protection Group. Um, we are a, a global organization. If you go on our website, which is really easy to find, icpgroupcompanies.com, uh, you can see some of the things that we do. I have some amazingly capable guys on my staff uh, who can resolve many issues. I myself will very physically and intrinsically get involved in projects. Um, we're a small boutique company. Uh, we don't profess to be huge. Um, and that works really well for us. We have a, a nice portfolio of clients that we work really well with and, uh, and we hopefully retain and we keep safe. Excellent stuff. Guys, go and get a copy of Will's book. Go check him out. He's a fascinating guy. There's lots more that we could learn. And you know what? I might see if I can squeeze another interview out of him in the new year to go into some other areas as well as the producers nodding ahead going, yes! Will, thank you so much for your time today. So it's always important to mention people that you partner with and partners for the podcast are Najahi Events and Najahi Tribe. Now, Najahi sounds like an unusual word, and it is, but it's Arabic for my success. And Najahi have brought some of the world-leading public speakers, motivational speakers, inspirational leaders across to Dubai over the course of the years, and Abu Dhabi, mind you. And Najahi brought, I don't know, people like Tony Robbins, ever heard of him? Okay, Nick Vujicic, no arms, no legs, no worries. Lisa Nichols, Prince EA, Jay Shetty, uh, Alicia Keys, and people like this. And they bring them in and they run events. And from those events, we go and we learn from these incredible people. On top of that, they launched the Najahi Tribe recently, where they have a collective of the world's greatest trainers, that literally you can join, become a member of, take advantage of a training from all of these different people, like real experts in their field. I've got a sneaky suspicion I might be one of them as well. But anyway, <laughs> hopefully you will go and check them out for me because you enjoy these episodes of the podcast. And remember, it's always team effort and I can't do it without the support of these people. So go check out Najahi Events, N-A-J-A-H-I events.com. <laughs> Well, that was a great episode, wasn't it? Will Geddes, what a man, what a man, what a man. Okay, go and get his book, guys. It's really important you do. Such good value. I mean, I worry about my kids. I'm sure you worry about your kids. Doing the right thing around cybersecurity is important. But it's just great talking to someone that's, that understands that whole industrial espionage, come kidnapping, ransom world, you know, that real James Bond, that guy that's been behind the scenes understanding stuff that we are all very, very naive to. In fact, most of us are oblivious to it as we walk around this world staring at our phones, not even lifting our head up, and in some cases tripping over the curb and falling into the pond, as you might have seen on YouTube. If you've enjoyed this episode, which I know you would have done, for all of you out there that listened to me, this was a good one, wasn't it? It was really valuable. Do me a favor. Go to iTunes and leave me a five-star rating if you possibly can. And if not, and you're doing it on SoundCloud or Spotify or any other app, your comments and feedback really, really matter. So please, please, please do me a favor and leave those comments. Subscribe to the show. Tell your friends about it. Look, we've got so many great guests coming on. And let me tell you, the next guest coming on, let me tell you, you're going to be excited about the next guest. I'll see you soon.